and welcome to WMMT's Mountain Talk Monday. I'm your host, Kelly Haywood, and tonight we have a really special treat. I got the pleasure, along with Mimi Pickering, to sit down and talk with Crystal Wilkinson, a really well-known Kentucky author and founding member of the Afrolachian Poets. Crystal Wilkinson is the author of Water Street, Blackberries, Blackberries, and the upcoming release, Birds of Opulence. She is the Appalachian Writer-in-Residence at Berea College. Wilkinson is a Kentucky native from Casey County and has won awards in both fiction and poetry and is known for inspiring and teaching writers throughout the Appalachian region. A former assistant director for the Carnegie Center for Literacy and Learning, she has also taught creative writing at the Governor's School for Arts. Wilkinson grew up on her grandparents' farm in Indian Creek, Kentucky, near Middleburg. She earned a bachelor's degree in journalism from Eastern Kentucky University and her master's of fine arts in writing degree from Spalding University in Louisville. She has taught writing courses in colleges throughout Kentucky and Indiana. So sit back and relax and be ready to hear a great conversation about what it means to be Appalachian in all its variations. I am an Afrolachian poet, an Afrolachian writer. I'm originally from um, Casey County, um, lived most of my life up on Indian Creek down in Casey County, um, and I'm currently the Appalachian Writer-in-Residence um, at Berea College. Um, and we are talking to you from here in our bookstore um, here in Lexington on the on North Limestone at the Wild Fig Books and Coffee. So um, what got you into being a writer? When did you start? Well, I think I was probably always a writer. My grandmother always told the story, and it sounds really romantic, one of those classic sort of writer fishing tales, so I'll tell you. But she, she always says that after she'd read all the, the books in the house, to me uh, and then later on I was able to read them myself and after she'd read them all to me and I'd read them all myself then I started writing my own when I ran out and I think that's that was part of it but uh you know the the culture there um, one was conducive to solitude because I was a an only child I was my mother's only child and I was being grandparent raised there on a farm um, up in that holler. So I think the solitude was one of the things, but I was also sort of born into sort of a classic art, artistic um, mountain family. I mean, my, my grandmother made quilts, my grandfather whittled. Um, so those were the things that were being done in the family. My mother played piano by ear and was a writer as well. So I think it was sort of a natural inclination. And I was also a very imaginative uh, child. And part of that, I think, was bred from the solitude as well. I had a pretty similar experience um, as you growing up. And, and I've um, always been fond of writing myself. So we lived with my grandmother and both of my grandmothers, paternal and maternal, were constantly telling me stories um, mm -hmm. 
I, I feel I felt like if I didn't go to bed without a ghost story, then the night was not complete. And um, <laughs> so it, uh, I remember writing my first complete book in the fifth grade mm-hmm. and illustrating it. <laughs> so oh, I did that too. I did that too. Uh, yeah. I still have. Do you still have yours? I do. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, you got fancy with yours. I, <laughs> I, I stuck mine in a three-ring binder, and um, it was all about being a marine biologist, which is what I thought I was going to grow up to be at the time. So it was interesting <laughs> to think about. So um, you identify as Appalachian, and mm-hmm. as you mentioned before, you you called yourself an Afrolachian rider. Um do you think that identifying as Appalachian makes your experience in the world unique or set apart I mean, I think, from uh, you know, folks outside the older of I get, the more I sort of begin to reject labels. But I think that Appalachian is just who I am, and I know that that experience is 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 different from you know my southern counterparts. It's different from my urban. Uh, counterparts we just have different experiences and uh, it doesn't feel like another set of people besides other Appalachians share all of the sort of common experiences that I have so I do think it sets sets me apart from other people in some ways and of course there's always common ground with with people with human beings globally actually but there's something special, I think, about being from Appalachia. I don't think I grew up. I always call myself a country person. Appalachia wasn't a word that um, my grandparents attached to themselves, and wasn't a word that until that I attached to myself until I got much older. And I find that to be a similar experience with a lot of my students at Berea. Um, they grew up grow up a particular way and you're just good country people you know some people refer to themselves as Appalachians and others don't who may geographically be from Appalachia or culturally be from Appalachia I think one of, and I'm, I'm similar in, in thought to you I, I avoid labels but Appalachian is not one that I find that I can avoid because when I'm outside of the region um, I get asked questions quite a bit, and the only way I can answer them is to describe myself as Appalachian. Yeah. I think the mountains isolate us in such a way that it's really made our experience a pretty particular one. Mm-hmm. Um, well, and I think, you know, as somebody who has this this dual ancestry, as, as someone who can be clearly identified as African-American if you see me. It's not really until I open my mouth that uh, I'm identified otherwise. And uh, I find that what you said is true, too. Like, especially if I'm, depending on where I'm at outside the region, if I'm in the deep south, it's a little bit of a difference. But there, there is always the question, where are you from? <laughs> and then you have to follow that up, and you can either... And, and having that word Appalachian is a is shorthand is a way to get the answer and move on to the next subject without having to belabor the conversation. Or sometimes the conversation is is enriched by that, and you can have a rich conversation with somebody about about 
the region. Yeah, it depends on how curious they are, I think. Yeah. About whether the stereotypes they've heard are true. All right, and that's, I find myself, well, I engage in those conversations now, but I find myself wanting to avoid most of the conversations because I don't want to uh, be mad. <laughs> I don't want to have to deal with those uh, those emotions from that point. And, and, you know, what I get, like I said, you can can look at me and see that I'm, I'm African-American, but when I start talking and then you get, you know, you see the raised eyebrows and then it's uh, the questions like, you know, do you feel safe there? Well, do you feel safe in your home? Like it's home, you know, of course I feel safe. And a lot of other questions that come um, down the pike regarding race. But, and you brought up another thing that really struck me is your grandparents and, and even my parents' generation not necessarily using the word Appalachian. Um, mm -hmm. That's a word that I heard in school. You know, when when my family was described to me, my grandmother is a genealogist by um, hobby, and um, she has us traced way, way back. And she always would tell tell me, you know, you're Cherokee and Scotch Irish. Mm -hmm. You know, wasn't it you know, even American? Just <laughs> Cherokee and Scotch Irish. Uh -huh. um, so I, I always found that interesting, but I appreciate the word um, way more now than I did ever while in school. Yeah, for me sure. too. Yeah. So um, you, again, um, use the word Afrolatchian, and I was wondering if you could describe for folks what is Afrolatchian literature and how does it differ from other African-American literature or even Southern literature? Well, I think that in uh, a lot of ways it it laps over. I taught a class in Afrolatchian literature at, at Berea and plan to do it again next spring. And uh, one of the things that I found when I was looking at all these definitions, I was like, oh yeah, that applies. So it's an amalgam of both Appalachian literature and African-American literature and also has the tropes and the devices of ethnic American literature. So a lot of those things overlap. You know, one of the things that Bob Morgan always said that uh, Appalachian literature was defined by the setting and the speech patterns and then having the universal themes of things like struggle and family relationships and then you add music and some other things on top of that and I think that's what Afrolatchian literature does as well um, that distinctive trait of region and self-expression and self-identity is always a part of it I think a lot of Afrolatchian literature provides a, a vehicle for healing, whether that's some talk about about slavery or some talk about stereotype. So a lot of those those tropes overlapped, a particular concentration and attention to um, oral tradition, the oral tradition and the oral tradition, meaning what you hear in the voices. Um, and those are things that also happen in Appalachian literature. So I think the word, you know, Frank coined that term. And while some people think it's a divisive term, I think that there's something about, something wonderful in the naming of yourself and being able to 
give yourself a an identity that's specific enough that uh, fits perfectly. And I think that that's what that 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 term Afrolatin Afrolatin does. But I also some people see it as divisive, but I see it as a as an umbrella um, and an inclusiveness. Because I you know as I've traveled all over Appalachia, one of the things that's been like really wonderful is uh, like when I was in uh, Radford, Virginia, I met a woman and she said, well, you know, we were Italian and a lot of people always thought that we were different. My father worked in the coal mines and, but we learned a lot about our Italian uh, culture. She says, I guess I'm Atalachian. And I said, yeah, I guess you are. And then I've heard different people that are in the region through their parents, um, through various professions and things. And so I met a, a woman who said, well, I must be Asialation. And I said, yeah, you're Asialation. Yeah, you, yes, you are. And a variety of things that that happen that way. So anytime that you can come across something that gives you a stronger sense of self-identity, um, that it's important to have. The name, what we call ourselves, is important. Yeah, and I think the term is is broad enough that it gives plenty of room for growth and adding on to what the meaning of it is. Um, right. Same way as Appalachian, that's always going to evolve and change and grow and cut back. Yeah, and I think it's grown, you know, when Frank coined the term, um, he was speaking of a particular experience that he had, and he was speaking of a particular group of people, those people you know, 10 of us that met in the back room of a coffee house and um, were trying to write and try to figure out who we were and how we fit in with other writers. But I think since then, in the 25 years since he coined that term, it has expanded and given a lot of people, you know, people call the the Carolina uh, chocolate drops Afrolatchin and uh, musicians that are Afrolatchin and other, you know, visual artists that are consider themselves Afrolatchin. And it's uh, sort of a back straightening, empowering word that has long since gone on beyond his, uh, his uh, original intention. And I think that's a wonderful thing too. Most certainly. And when I see Appalachian literature gaining more attention all over the country, it it really strikes me as you began to describe Appalachian literature that um, you described it as being very set in place and speech pattern. Mm-hmm. And those are the two most distinctive things, I think, about all of Appalachian literature. So I'm wondering... What does set apart Afrolatchian literature from Appalachian literature? Is it the idea of race or is it more? Well, I think the the idea of of race is is not a simple one. There's a particular set of of struggle and cultural identity that is um, exclusive to African Americans, and I think when you extend that to Appalachians, it's it's the same thing. So I think that you know some of those things, like there is the use of language, and I think that uh, if I'm speaking for myself as as both uh, writer and as individual, I think that I probably speak the same language 
as other Appalachians, but there's also uh, a dual speak. There's there's a, an African American vernacular on top of that that makes that unique. So when uh, an Afro-Latin writer is writing the language of their people, they're doing things like calling out the the long eyes, uh, which is typical to Appalachian culture and Appalachian speak, and they're also doing inside jokes and slang that's particularly distinctive to African-American culture. For example, uh, you know, the dozens, this idea of uh, talking about somebody's parents or uh, having inside jokes or sayings that those are unique to African-American culture and those are things that are that are used. I think the idea of writing against um, any historical record uh, is something that a lot of regional writers use and writers from other cultures but I think that makes it distinctive too uh, which is also something that that Appalachian writers do. So a, a lot of it's the same, but some of it is different. Just an extra flair on it, I think. A variation of experience. Um, yeah. So there's always been the question of whether or not an Appalachian writer should write out the dialect, write phonetically, um, in order to describe the way that we speak to a reader and I remember the first time I read River of Earth and James Steele wrote a lot of the dialogue in that phonetically I remember it took me forever to figure out how he was writing the word poor and it Uh was like pure or and I kept thinking what is he saying there Mm -hmm. you know and uh now I read someone like Silas House, and he doesn't write phonetically, and I think that's been the decision, is to not write phonetically, but he still is able to capture our speech so well in just word choice and Mm -hmm. the flow, how you would read it, the punctuation. Um, Does Afro-Latin literature um, write in phonetics or... Well, I think it varies from writer to writer, just like it, it does with uh, other writers of the region. I think, personally, my first books relied a lot on uh, phonetics, I think, in, in dialect, and dialogue, when the characters are speaking. Um, but my new book doesn't so much. And I know that James Steele in River of Earth uh, does that, but he also has passages that are written very beautifully that don't have phonetic spellings and they'll use the occasional word like you know foch or something like that and um, I've learned a lot from those writers and I've incorporated that into my own writing although I think that every book tells you what it needs you know my new book for instance I think I don't rely on phonetics as much as I do nuance to get the points across so I, I think there's a variety. I think uh, traditionally a lot of uh, African-American writers use the um, African-American church experience and some of those kind of things in their work. Legends, myth, magic, songs, that sort of thing. And I do that a little bit as well. And when you when you started talking about the myths and and magic and all of that interwoven with the historical 
story, I couldn't help but think about their eyes were watching God, Zora Neale Hurston. There's so much oh, yeah. magic in that book. She uses magic to describe almost everything. Yes. Great yeah. book. It's one of my favorite books. Yeah, mine too. Um, and I think too when we, nowadays, when we write phonetically, it's good to make it count. Like put it in there when it's gonna apply the biggest punch. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Make it count for something. Yeah, it all has to be earned. I think in the writing, and that's the point. If you, if you put the phonetic spelling on on every line, well, and you need to remember you're writing for. I mean, I think I tell writers this all the time that you need to remember that you're writing for a contemporary audience, and you want to give the the reader the illusion of real speech not give them sort of phonetically uh their real speech and that can happen with any any identity I, I worked with a writer one time who was writing about the potato famine and she was had done her research and she was really trying to write like the people of that time sounded and she was really trying to create a, a part of of ireland in a particular brogue and it was so thick that she had buried the story so much deep in, into it that you couldn't get it. And she took almost all of it out and would, would add just the occasional word, which I'd encourage her to do. And it turned out to be just such a, a lovely piece of work that a contemporary audience could easily understand and still get the flavor and the, the richness of the culture. So your new book, Birds of Opulence, just came out in hardback. Is that correct? Well, it's on its way. I think I think uh, we thought it would would hit the warehouse this week, but it looks like it's going to be next week. But um, I actually have one of the hardbacks, and I don't know if anybody else does yet. But uh, I've been carrying it around under my under my elbow. <laughs> but it, it the official release is March seventh. And, and you've got a few publications under your belt now, but do you still get excited when you hold that book in your hands? Very much so. Yeah, I've got it in my hand now, which the, the listeners can't see, but I'm just, everybody here that's watching can see that I'm just like grinning from ear to ear about it. Uh, it's still the same excitement. Like I remember when, um, when Blackberries came out, I got the box at home and uh, opened up the box of the first ones and just could not believe I mean of course I cried but it was just that whole feeling of picking up a book of your own volume and I kept flipping my hands through the my fingers through the pages and letting the breeze of all those pages hit my face and it's just a, a great feeling of course I haven't had a new book out since 2002 so 14 years um, to have a new book makes it extra exciting read a passage from the book for us? Yeah, I'd be happy to. Let's see. In late August, when Minnie Mae and her sons arrive at the home place, the country feels like it's settling down to rest for the night. A slight breeze rustles the trees and sounds grow up and out around them until the hundreds of creatures, large and small, become one loud voice. It is as if the night has taken up the voices of the good kin long past, and even Butter and June with their new city ways have to listen. The old house leans and the porch sags, this same old house where Minnie Mae and Henry lived as a young couple. 
Every spring, the boys come to help Minnie Mae clean up the yard and plant the early garden. In fall, they come help her rake the leaves. Though nobody lives there now, she insists on sweeping the dirt around the back porch into a series of swirling patterns and pinching back the hens and chickens growing in a big white tub on a stump. Butter leans on the handle of the grubbing hole, and June stands holding a clump of weeds, the fresh white roots reaching down toward the ground. This is y'all's what for, Benny May says, placing one hand on her hip and the other one spreading far and wide from one edge of the knob across the creek to the other side. The moon is out and the farm is glowing behind her. All this, she says, been up under your people's feet since slave times. My mama and daddy worked this land and their mama and daddy before them. Old man Hezekiah started all this back in 1878, just 100 years after Daniel Boone blazed a bloody trail across here, killing every Indian he saw. Old man Hezekiah, he was freed from Virginia, paid $156 for eight acres of land right here. Old time people always said that old Hezekiah was a tree of a man, a master carpenter. Of course, a lot of people around here didn't know what was meant by the word opulence, but old people, old time people say he cut the sign out of the finest woods and carved elk, bison, foxes, and birds all over it and then wrote opulence as delicate as a teacher's cursive with a chisel. It's been called opulence ever since here. It's true. Minnie Mae loops her arms around the waist of her boys, fingers from one hand wrung through the loops of butter's belt loops, the other resting on June's back. This is going to be y'all's and Tukey's one day. Pap stood right there out by that well and said, that's all a man needs is some little piece of rich earth and a good woman. Reckon he got what he needed in your grandmother, and she got what she needed in him. Minnie Mae shifts her hips to ease the aching through her hip bone, looks from one of her boys to the next. I don't know nothing about being a man, can't say I've raised you up to be good men, but I've done the best I can. I do know what a good man is. Your daddy was a good man. My daddy was a good man. Good man's more than breath and britches. Man got gumption. Woman too. Woman's got to have more gumption than a man sometimes. Woman goes through more things and then's got to help the man bear his burdens. Butter breaks his mother's grip. Mama, I don't see why you don't sell this old place. None of us are set to be farmers. We all got our own lives, good lives. It's just sitting here growing weeds. The house is falling in. He places his hand on her shoulder. You know, you're getting too old to keep putting in the garden and look at the house. Ain't nothing much left here but firewood. You hushed your bad mouth. Can't even see yourself when feasting your eyes right in the looking glass. Hush your ignorant mouth. This ain't about no grade of wood on no house. Mama Butter's right. June looks down toward the ground and kicks at the dust. Deep down, he knows his mother is the freight train gaining steam that she's always been. Not much meek and mild about her even now. Y'all take me on back home. You can't see yesterday when you don't know what's coming your way tomorrow. Let's get going. Plum ignorant. You're ashamed for God, your daddy, and all your people. Again, the boys who have somehow, without many may noticing, turned into men, some kind of men, 
stare at their mother as though an old folks home would suit her fine with a patronizing glint in their eyes usually reserved for young children who've gotten out of line. She is angry with both of them, but Minnie Mae's heart still dances with glee when her boys come home. And even though they're adults with grown children, she still dotes on them and fixes blackberry cobbler for butter and corn pudding for June, even when her legs are hurting her bad. Your daddy spit you right out, she says to Butter each time he steps his long legs from whatever new car he has purchased. And she rubs up and down his arms like they're the arms of her Henry long dead. And she grabs June by the jaws and kisses each of his cheeks like a mother would a boy of five. And of course she loves the grandchildren, even if they are a strange lot. The wives, they're ins insignificant, don't have the same sweetness about them that the son-in-law has. Joe Brown, now that's a different story. He's like a third son, one without blood but with a bushel of sense. When they get back to opulence from the home place, Minnie Mae insists that the boys head on back to the city so they won't be driving home too late in the dark. She doesn't beg them back into the house for pie or ask them to spend one more night. Long after Minnie Mae has watched the taillights of her son's cars disappear into the dark, she stands on the porch and scrapes the mud off her boots. Powerful. <laughs> um, and that's what I love about Appalachian literature. And also Southern literature does this really well, is put us in a place so deep that we can almost get lost there even if we've never been. Mm-hmm. And that, to me, is just a tremendous power that, that books have, even more so than film or any other type of storytelling. Um, oral tradition can match it because I think it's the same medium. Well, and Minnie Mae's the, the elder woman in this book, and um, I think she represents the sort of matriarchal storyteller. She does a lot of the storytelling. She's sort of the keeper of the word for the family and uh, the keeping of the traditions. And these sons who have moved off to the city don't really understand the value of the home place or their history. And she's sort of constantly letting them have it <laughs> about that. And that's why I read that piece. I love her in this book. She's, she's the keeper of the traditions like many mountain women are. Yeah, my grandmother is that for us. And she's the last grandparent that I have living and mm -hmm. she is constantly telling us about our past and my dad will be like well that's the past why do we want to talk about that you know yeah but then the grandkids are eating it up so it's interesting how those traditions ebb and flow and how we can reconnect to our identity through those family lines do you know how long your family's been in Appalachia since before slavery since right at the time of slavery there's a a story about um how i think his name was tarkington was one of my ancestors one of my white ancestors had um had been sort of called to task by other slave owners in the area because he had given um several plots of land up on indian creek to his black descendants and had freed them all and that's kind of how that um, African-American community up there got started. And that was right right at the time of, of slavery. And then 
there are other ancestors who were Native American that uh, my family talks about. So it's been a long, a long time. I, I know that's true for my family that we've been here a really long time as well. And we can trace back how we got here in most cases of each of our family lines. And the stories are incredibly interesting. And hearing the personal part of the story sometimes I think is just as interesting, if not more so, than talking about a book. Because as writers, I don't think that we can deny that our personal lives inform what we write. And I remember one of my best writing teachers that I've ever had, his name was Tim Skeen, and he told me the way to the universal is through the specific. I personally am constantly drawing on the family story Mm -hmm. and all of that. So how important do you think it is that as Appalachian people, we tell our personal stories and be open and honest about our experiences? Well, I mean, I think it's essential. I mean, I think it's essential to, to storytelling and getting at the truth through the story um, is essential to all cultures, I think. And I think it's particularly essential to us because I think that Appalachians as a whole, we're constantly having to defend ourselves socioeconomically, culturally, geographically, just about every way possible. And being able to call up those stories are the only ways that our backs can be straight about who we are, uh, especially if we paying any attention to the outside world. It's That's where our culture is, is in those stories that have been passed down, those hard scrabble stories, those heartwarming stories, those on the porch stories, in the creek stories. They're fascinating to hear, and I think that's where the richness lies. You know, even every, like in my family, every meal that's cooked, just about, everything has a story. Everything has a story, and another thing that I feel about our experience here is it's always cloaked in, again, the word magic. It's cloaked in mystery and magic. Oh, yeah. Even when you come across the most religious folks in the mountains, there's always that little thread of magic that runs through or superstition. Yeah. And I've not met many people who deny that there's a little part of the magical in our world here. Yeah, I mean, I grew up with a two very Christian, very religious, uh, free will Baptist people, but my grandfather was a water witch and my grandmother was a healer. Like they were always called upon by other people in the community to, you know, cure a baby with colic or, you know, someone would call and ask when they should cut their hair for either for it to grow back or for it not to grow back for a while. And my grandfather used to um, remove warts with beans and my grandmother made cool compresses for people to help straighten kids' legs out. I mean, it was just always something going on. And my grandfather witched every well in the county. So let's come back to another thing that has struck me lately is I believe Appalachia to be more of a matriarchal culture. 
even though we may not quite admit it or um, represent that way, be comfortable with representing that way. But Mm -hmm. hearing the piece that you read from your book just now, it, it reminded me of just how matriarchal we are. I think all of us center around the grandmother, center around the mother, and it's the woman who seems to hold the critical things together while the people around her are struggling to provide in more monetary ways. I know my own grandmother, she passed actually today, a year ago. I never knew her while she was with my grandfather, while she was married to him. And so she was always single, a single mom, a working mom. Every day she provided for us and cooked for us. So I had that example from really early on. And family reunions always seemed to be planned by the women And the women picked up the pieces. They took care of the men when the men couldn't take care of themselves. Can you speak to that? Is that a similar experience for you? Yeah, I mean, I think it is. You know, there's a a lot of talk, um, I think particularly in African-American cultures, like the absence of the the father is um, always talked about. And my father was also absent, but there was no lack of patriarchal images or images of men. Patriarchal is not the word, but no lack of men in my family. You know, my grandfather was ever present. My uncles were ever present. My great uncles were ever present. But it was the women who sort of uh, led at times, allowing the men to think that they, well, it wasn't even that sort of manipulation either, which is also a stereotype. It was, everyone had a role and those roles were respected. There wasn't a lot of talk, just like we talked about not being called Appalachians. The word feminism wasn't bantied about, but I was definitely raised by a wonderful gaggle (laughs) of feminist women, Um, you know, women who, who worked, who worked outside the home, who worked in the home. I'm not so much a really religious person now, but I respected the society uh, and the social aspect of church. And that's where I learned sort of the roles of women in church because the men had a role, like every year we would have a, a homecoming. And this is when it was most evident. We'd have a homecoming, dinner on the grounds at our church. And so they would come together as a community and the men would get the sheep Um, So there would be mutton, and the men would get the chickens, and then they would disperse the meat out to the women. So each household got so many chickens to cook and so many pounds of mutton. That's all. And the men got the ice. That's all they did. (laughs) And the women did everything else. They did all the cooking, but they also did all the, the organizing for it and the way that it should go and how much everything should cost and how they would feed those people who couldn't pay and where the children would be in all of this and how the children were supposed to act and you know how we knew exactly what we were supposed to do when we were supposed to help and when we were supposed to get out of the way and then sort of the fun of it all you know we sort of wrote after a while and being a part of it for so many years but it was just a great 
time and a great time to see not just your family at work, but the entire community working together to put this thing on and the power of the women um, during the manifestation of this was amazing. So I've got to ask, after all of that, did the women eat last too? Yes. Yes, they did. And and I and that's where I always wanted to be because you could look at it as sort of the women sort of being second class because they ate last. But boy was it fun to be in that dining room and hear all those women talk about the stories and they'd be working so hard but it was they were still observing everything they would know exactly who came through their lines oh did you see sister so-and-so I hadn't seen her in 15 years and I'm thinking you know as a child how in the world did you see anybody and do all of this but they managed to get it all in and they sung and they ate and they cleaned up and it was it was just great yeah they did eat last my grandmother would do that too in our household. She'd either eat while she was cooking or she'd wait till everybody else got settled. And then she'd sit down with her plate as we were all, the rest of us were getting finished. And then my grandfather would want pie. And then she'd get back up. Um, but I never thought of that as, uh, it wasn't necessarily an, a negative thing in the house. She had her power. It wasn't a demure kind of servitude. Um, it was a, t- a taking, a caregiving that had power behind it. Now that's when hearing you talk and having images of the women in my life, that's the thing that keeps popping into my head is people don't realize how much power there is in that. Here, I can provide all of this for you and I can do it and also choose to eat last and how Mm -hmm. much power there is there. And it was a choice. It wasn't like I'm going to, I've got to eat last because somebody's making me do this. You know, of course, not to completely romanticize it, there was this sort of, uh, you know, it's a a patriarchal culture to it too. And and probably some women were abused, but it certainly didn't happen in my household. It was an expectation, but the women had found a way to empower themselves in that and, you know, my grandmother took great pride in preparing those meals and making sure that we were all taken care of. And, and you know, my grandfather worked hard, so everybody had their roles. There wasn't any sort of slacking in anybody. I mean, and it takes that. To live rurally, everybody has to be on board. You know, the wood has to be chopped. You know, in our household, there was so much work. I think about me just nearly fainting every day like oh I'm so overworked and I'm like I don't have to take the pot out I don't have to (laughs) you know I don't have to bring the pot in and take the pot out in the cold I don't have to cut the firewood I don't have to stoke the fire I don't have to do any of those things I don't have to go to the well to get the water and bring it in you know I'm not that old so I was being raised like that even in the 70s and the 80s that's how we were living and Probably a lot. I know people now um, from down home that still live like that, and that's a lot of a lot of work. You've got to have your roles, and you've got to also be empowered in those roles, and and do what you need to do. And that's definitely how my family was. And and there was room for fun. There was room for worship, room for music, room for quilting, room for writing, whittling, storytelling. And it's. Uh 
really wonderful to think about the teamwork, but also just how reliant we were upon one another and our community members because one person comes out of that dynamic and the potential for everything just falling apart is very real. Yes. Yeah. Another thing that I want to touch on and you being a writer ask you about is there is so many things about the Appalachian experience that is very well understood, but never really spoken out loud. Like some of these roles, where your place is, how you treat your elders. Yeah. And being a mother myself, sometimes I think, well, how did I learn respect? And I'll go back and I'm like, it was never really taught to me in a sense. So we have all of these things that we don't talk about, but as Appalachians, we understand it in a particular way. As a writer, do you ever try to reveal those things, or do you do you think it's best kept secret? No, I mean, I think that's that's the, the idea for me, is to um, present those things. You know, that's, that's kind of my mission, I think, as a writer and as an Appalachian writer. And as a black Appalachian writer, to bring those things to the to forefront, you know, when I first began writing, my uh, my idea, my mission was to bring to the forefront the African American experience of Appalachia, to bring that to the forefront because we were invisible, like nobody talked about that there were black people there. I, I mean, to this day, I still will go to a large city in, in the United States and somebody will say, where are you from? And I go through all that and you see the puzzled brow and the head cocked to the side, like, you know, really? Is that where you, you know, you've always lived there? Well, yes. But now I, I think that uh, my goal is to to try to be nuanced in my writing to bring forth those kind of things to get people to really understand the culture. This new book, The Birds of Opulence, is about a lot of things. One of the things that it deals with is mental illness and how that's dealt with in these particular households in this town of Opulence, Kentucky. And the other thing are things like what you're talking about, like how how outsiders are treated and how they're accepted and brought along as part of the family uh, because he does accept the old time ways like Minnie Mae who you just heard from she really ends up accepting her son-in-law almost more than she does her sons because she appreciates his appreciation for the old time ways so uh, yeah I'm all about bringing it all out <laughs> uh, as a treasure and part of that is to pass it on you know, to be able to, to, to celebrate it and pass it on to other people. I think our culture is changing a great deal because I'm seeing some of these things that we held so dear to our hearts as just something that everyone did, no matter political or religious beliefs, starting to fall away. And I think it's partly because we're starting to absorb more of the mainstream culture and we're not as isolated anymore. Yeah. And, and some of our that's, ways are falling. Yeah, and I think that's exactly it. Um, all of our children, because they have been taught to be ashamed of where they're from, you know, even within their own families and their own school systems and their own towns and, um, and by society at large, 
then their idea is to assimilate. You know, you, you hear, I work with a lot of students whose uh, goal has been to completely lose their accents. They'll come in wanting to write about everything else but their culture. I uh, met a young woman, a young African-American woman uh, who had read my book, Blackberries, and wanted to come in and talk to me the other day. And I asked her, where was she from? And she said, Atlanta. And I said, Atlanta? And she said, no, I'm going to stop saying that because I'm not from Atlanta. I'm from rural Georgia. And the more I talked to her, the more her accent came out that she even had one. She was speaking with a very sort of refined Walter Cron Cronkite mainstream American voice with no no dips in it at all. And um, I would have thought she was from anywhere. That's just one example of the things that's that's happening. And then it goes deeper than that. You know, everybody, it's, it's, our children want to assimilate. They don't want to be known as being from where they're from. They've been taught to do that by us to some extent and then by a larger extent by society. But why can't they be? Why can't we be who we are and be anywhere in the world? And be proud of it. Yeah, my grandfather owned the Cowshed Trading Post in Isom, Kentucky, and he had worked. He um, started going to flea markets and then worked to build the building and all of that to get himself out of the mines. And he lamented over and over again to me as I was growing up that Walmart should not come here. Walmart should not come here. That'll be the end of things. And he fought against the gas station that was next door to him because they wanted to buy his property because he wasn't doing good business anymore. And and after he passed on, you know, Walmart is there and he's buried across the street from Walmart. And oh, the gas station bought the land and tore his store down and made a truck parking lot out of the area. Mm. So that's... Um, I just saw that happen and, and was too young to do anything about it. <laughs> so, But, you know, there's there are things that we can do. And, and that brings me back to wanting to ask you, um, when you said that the Afrolachian term was coined while about 15 of you, you said, sat in the back of a coffee shop. What yeah. happened from there? The term was coined, well, and then what happened? Well, Frank actually coined the term in isolation. We were already a writing group. The story goes that he had gone to see a reading, and I think Gurney was at this reading and a lot of other writers from the region, and the only African-American writer they had there was Nikki, and Nikki was from South Carolina. And so... It wasn't the first time he had heard the term Appalachian, but he kept thinking, well, I'm here and I'm in Kentucky and, you know, what does this mean? And he went to an older dictionary, like, of course, the new dictionaries won't have this in there. And it said white people indigenous to the Appalachian region. So just by that definition in this big, huge Oxford dictionary, all the rest of us have been excluded from that definition. And so he replaced the P's with F's, and he had come back to us. I don't remember exactly how it happened, but he, we were just a little group of writers trying to get together and, and write and critique each other's writing, and uh, he came back with that name, Afrolachian Poets. 
back then, that term was exclusively for that group. But since then, that term has spread and morphed and is, is a label that belongs to a lot of people in a lot of different circumstances now. Some people inside the region had had problems with it with sort of this thing like it's hard enough for us <laughs> as Appalachians and then here you are breaking off with another uh, subset and then the other thing on top of that was and some of you all are not even from Appalachia so then there was that question which continues to be a question I see that as a problem um, as I work on Berea College's campus this idea of who is Appalachian which is a question of the century, I think. Where are you from? And then making the decisions based on that. Well, like, well, I don't know if you're Appalachian or not based on that. So, you know, is Appalachia a place or is it a state of mind? And there are all those kind of questions that are sort of afloat and people either go with it or defend it to the death, <laughs> depending on, on who they who they are and I've seen it sort of fall both ways but it's just an, an interesting thing and and you know all of the Afro-Latin poets are not African-American um, that's the other thing you know there are I mean Asian Afro-Latin poets there are white Afro-Latin poets as far as people who are in the group Gurney is considered sort of the grandfather of of the Afro-Latin poets and you know Gurney certainly isn't African-American either in that particular group, it's more about a state of mind and familial ties and uh, particular values, maybe, um, than it is about geographic region. In all honesty, I have really strong feelings about what Appalachia is and who is or isn't, but in considering whether or not those are legitimate feelings or just a protective mechanism of my own, yeah. um, I, I think we have to realize that even within the Appalachian experience, just like within the American experience, there are so many variations and it doesn't make one any less Appalachian or any more Appalachian, just as it doesn't make us any less American. I mean, I hear people adamant about not being Appalachian which clearly they are so it's it's just it is about a state of a mind I think it's also about self-identity and acceptance of who you are as part of it too and and I think there are variations on it I think you're right it doesn't doesn't make you part of it is is left up to the to the individual what is your hope what do you hope to share with the Appalachian people, what do you want to leave behind as your legacy there? I mean, I see myself as um, an African-American in Appalachia. And I think this sort of the richness and the vastness of the culture, and particularly of the literature, is important to me. And so as a person of letters, uh, and that being my focus, I think that's my legacy. This development of this Appalachian literature class at Berea, which I've taught, even on a community basis, um, and some of the writers, you know, that are outside of the Appalachian Poets group, uh, and exposing those writers to to people so that people can see 
a glimpse into that culture I think are important and encouraging uh, other students to write about about where they're from and, and to write about their Appalachian culture their Appalachian culture uh, however it might be hyphenated whatever you are we're all Appalachians together and have there's some commonalities to our experiences and there's some variances uh, to our experiences moonlight pours across the porch like a big bowl of creamy soup Minnie Mae relaxes into the chair and nods off to sleep. A cat yells like it's hurt somewhere down the street and a breeze takes up the leaves. Somehow Joe had been thinking that maybe if Butter and June went down to the home place, everything would fall into place and they'd understand what it all meant. But he can tell by Mama Minnie's posture that nothing good has happened on this night. He is reminded of the time that he and the women stopped for a picnic one summer down at the home place near Mission Creek. Minnie Mae and Tuki packed cold sandwiches and fruit wrapped in tin foil and they put a few cans of pop in a rusty blue cooler in the trunk of the car. They spread a couple of old quilts on the ground and watched a flock of geese fly over them. Lucy sat quietly and dipped her hands in the creek, scooping up palms of water, then letting it trickle through her slender fingers. Tuki cradled Kiki in her lap and rubbed her fingers through his hair until he fell asleep across her like a kitten. This was long before Yolanda was born. Minnie Mae hovered over the food just like she was at the stove back at the house. She looked peaceful, but she had been talking about Mr. Henry and her boys all day long. From where they had positioned themselves, they could see the roofs of the barns and the old home place. The sun was streaming down and spreading yellow on everything like a painting he had seen once. Right now, he can't remember what the occasion was, but he recalls the purest feeling of happiness that washed over him in those moments. Joe looks over at Minnie Mae, her silver head dipping toward her chin and smiles. Her head bobs down hard and she suddenly wakes a little embarrassed. Law me, she says, I bet I was snoring. She wipes the side of her mouth with the back of her hand. Joe squeezes her shoulder then opens the front door where they can see the entire family readying for supper. Let's get you in the house, Mama Minnie, he says. You're going to catch a chill out here. So that's the, uh, that's the end of that, of that chapter. To learn more about Crystal and her writing, visit her at Wild Fig Books on North Limestone in Lexington, Kentucky, or you can check her out online at www wildfigbooks.net or come to Seed Time on the Cumberland Festival in June here in Whitesburg and visit Wild Fig Books at their pop-up store that they're going to be having during the festival. You've been listening to Mountain Talk Monday on WMMT. I'm your host, Kelly Haywood. I want to give a big super deluxe special thanks to Crystal Wilkinson and I want to thank you for listening to Real People Radio. Have a good evening.